If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Doing okay? Been a hot minute, huh? I'm glad to see that we made it to chapter two. I was gone for three months. So, uh, in spirit of, uh, of what we do here at The Mission, we're going to cover half verse today. No, not really. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do four for sure. Um, but yeah, I was gone for a few months this summer, got to do some cool stuff with the Air Force, uh, mostly the Air Force chaplaincy, and so that's a, I think that's maybe the future the Lord has for me, is working in the Air Force as like a pastor, um, but we'll see how that goes, maybe at a part-time capacity, but that's where I've been, so it wasn't like a, I had to repent and come back to church, and now I'm sharing a prodigal son message, and so it's not like that, you know, so you can, you can hear from me, that's okay. But today we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And we're going to be going through verses 25 through 29. And we're going to be talking about circumcision today. So that'll be interesting, huh? It'll be interesting. Somebody doesn't know what that is in here, but that's okay. That's all right, because it's about the spiritual thing that it represents. Can you guys hear me okay? Am I okay? Okay. So I'll just pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you that we can come in this place today and, and freely worship you. Like, it's not like that everywhere. And so, God, we count it a privilege to come in this place and worship the king of the universe. Like, we, we're in awe of that. Lord, would you give us a heart of repentance if, Lord, we came here with any other expectation to meet with you? Like, we're here for that, Lord. So we pray that you would help me to get out of the way, to decrease, and just clearly communicate what you have in your word for your people this morning. And we just, we love you and we thank you that we're going to spend heaven, uh, all eternity in heaven with you. That's, that's, uh, that's a part of, of uh, you know, you going to the cross for us. And so, Lord, we just, we're thankful that today we're, we're reconciled to you completely, not by what we do, but, but why, what you did. So uh, I just pray that you would settle my nerves and uh, we just, you know, we just glory in the, the name of Jesus today. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Sorry about that. A little shaky, like the Lord scares me kind of thing. So um, in, in 2014, I wanted to start off like this. In 2014, there was a, a study done by the Pew Research Center, and they called this particular study the Religious Landscape Study. And in this study, they identified that over 23% of Americans are no longer affiliated with any sort of religious group. So they completely self-identify with no religious group. And they, they term this group of people the nuns, like N-O-N-E-S, like not the nun with the, all the get up, like they need the gospel to, but the nuns. And so they don't claim to be Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, they identify under no religion. And what's concerning about this particular group is that 35% of this group are millennials, like the skinny jean generation, which, which marks the highest percentage in history of a younger generation who identify with no God. 23% of all America have no God. And to put that little 23% number into greater perspective, 80 million people in America woke up this morning who are completely disconnected from God. Like object, objectively from data, like from the Pew Research Center, 80 million people woke up with no God this morning. In 1970, this number was less than 3%. 
And so I think that we can agree that the unchurched are not interested in religion. And the argument that I want to make this morning is that Jesus isn't either. Like, Jesus is not interested in religion. And if that's true, what sort of implications does this have for our life? Because I believe, like, when I read the Gospels, it's hard to to not see Jesus constantly challenging the status quo of religiosity in his own day, right? Like, he's always butting head with these nasty little guys called the Pharisees. And so what set Jesus apart from the religions and the religious leaders of the world is that Jesus demonstrated himself to be God in the flesh, right? Like, would you guys agree with that as the church this morning? Is anybody with me? Amen on that? Okay, so in light of that reality, he called people to follow him with their heart and not external religious activity. Because Jesus doesn't want our religion. Jesus wants our heart. And so I want to frame this in the book of Romans, I want to show you how Paul argues this to a a group of hyper-religious people. And so let's look at this, verse 25 through 29. Chapter 2. Paul says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, even though you have the letter of the law and circumcision, or a transgressor of the law? For he is a Jew who is not one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of in the flesh. And then verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, and not by the letter. And his praise is from men, but from God. Like, that is good. Like, we could just leave on verse 29 right there, right? Like, that is really good. And so, we're going to have to do a little bit of work to unpack what is going on in this text. Like, we're we're talking about circumcision today. Like, 2018 North Shore, circumcision and religion. And so, we're going to get to what all those implications are But in essence, if we were to boil this down to a simple thesis statement, Paul is simply arguing that religion does not save. Only Jesus saves. Which sounds really oxymoronic. Like, how can you have religion without Jesus? Right? Like, I try to argue my friends that sort of thing. Like, man, you can come to church. You don't have to have the religion thing. You can have Jesus. But, man, they don't don't buy it usually, right? Like, because isn't Jesus, like, the epitome of religion? religion, right? Like, that's, that's what the world has clearly identified Jesus as. I remember when I went to Israel, a trip uh, way back in the day, it was interesting because all of the biblical sites that we went to were, like, literally shrines where Jesus had been. Like, it was, it was crazy. Like, everywhere Jesus had been or they thought he went, they made, like, these crazy shrines there. And we went to this one particular shop where you could, like, you buy all kinds of, like, Jesus paraphernalia and one of the things I remember seeing was these little bottles of water in this big basket. And it was like holy water that you could buy and take back home with you. Like the world has clearly pinned Jesus as religious. But I want to argue, according to his own standard, that Jesus came to abolish religion. Like, like Jesus came to fulfill the law and he came to set people free from a life of self-justification. And not only that, but when you just look in biblical Christianity, wherever ever it has existed, it's always been marked by a relationship with Jesus. 
and not a relation or a religion to be followed. Like everywhere you look for biblical Christianity, that's always what marks it. And so the reformers, like they were, they were unsettled with the gross form of religion in their own day. And so what they do, they challenged it. They said, this is not what Christ has called us to. Not, not gross forms of religion, but a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I'll say it again. If you don't get anything out of the text today, I know it's been a while since I've preached, so it might be kind of sloppy. We'll see how it goes. But if you don't get anything out of today, just know that God is not concerned with external religious activity. He is concerned completely with the heart. And I believe that you know, there's been really good Bible preaching here that we get that. Like, we understand that Jesus wants the heart of a person, right? Like, we get that. Like, that's basic 101. But for whatever reason, maybe it's just me, I feel like it's a trap that we often find ourselves falling into. Like, we have, like, pockets of re- revival in our, in our own heart, or right after we get saved, like, we're fired up for Jesus. Like, Jesus, you have my heart. Like, I want to go on the mission field tomorrow sort of passion. I mean, after I got saved, I was crazy. Like, my girlfriend wife at the time called me a zealot. Sometimes she would listen to this lady named Lady Gaga, and I thought that, like she was like Satan incarnate, you know? And she wasn't even like, listening to it. was like we were going somewhere in the car, and that song came on. I was, like, I was just wondering, like, is she going to change the station, you know? I was just like crazy, like maybe miscalculated, but I, I just knew that Jesus had my heart, and I wanted to follow him wherever he went. And so I think that's a trap that we fall into. Like you give me a book of do's and don'ts, show me when and where to show up, and I'm going to crush it. Give me a how to follow Jesus syllabus that shows me what to do, when to do, and how to do it, and I'm good. Unfortunately, as Christians, especially the people of the mission, we know that God he doesn't operate like that. Because the heart and the attention of the person is much more complicated than that. Like we're really complicated people. And so what I don't want you to think is that religion's just completely bad. Like religion is not bad within itself, right? Like, it's good that you rolled out of bed today and came to church. Like, hallelujah, that, that's a good thing, right? But does it make you any more or less saved by the gospel? It's good that you pray before you eat. It's good that you give financially. It's good that you're baptized. It's good that you serve in the church. It's good that you do a whole bunch of sort of religious stuff that's even expected of the Christian. But I humbly want to say that it's worthless without the heart. Right, like, like baptism was just you getting wet without the heart. Like you could have did that in your shower, right? Communion is just juice and crackers without the heart. And they're not even good juice and crackers, right? Like they're stale. And this is exactly what Paul, sorry for the communion people, but they're stale. And so that was an attack on you. That was just me saying, man, it's just juice and crackers. It's just water. It's all about what it represents, And so this is exactly what Paul is arguing this morning. This is what he's attacking. And so going back to the text, we know that God had actually prescribed circumcision to the Jewish people. Like this was a big deal for the Jew. Like this was the number one thing to do on the syllabus, so to speak. Like you get circumcised. It was the sign of the covenant made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. And so it's going to be hard to capture the incredible importance of circumcision to the Jews, to a group of people living on the other side of the planet on a small island, right? And and to boot, like people who yearly celebrate the birth of a Jewish Messiah with baked ham and dragging a dead tree into their house. Like there's just going to be a disconnect between us understanding circumcision to the Jewish person. 
And so I was trying to figure out, like, how am I going to communicate this to you guys? Because there's a lot of different texts that communicate how important circumcision is to the Jew. And I wanted to tell you guys this one really obscure story that comes out of Exodus with this crazy gal named Zipporah. This is a really crazy story. And maybe we can be honest in church for a minute. It's one of those those Bible reading moments where you're just kind of cruising along the narrative. Like, you know where God's going. Like, you know where this whole thing's going to go. And then this, like, right in the random, like, the most random section, there's just, like, the random story in the middle of the bigger story where you're just kind of left scratching your head. Like, why is that there? Like, has anyone been there? Like, when they're reading their Bible, like, this is like, what is that? Like, that happens to me sometimes, and it happens here in Exodus 4, where we have a few really random verses that highlight the importance of circumcision. And it's like in the middle of a good story, too. Like, Moses has just encountered God at the burning bush, and God told Moses to go back to Egypt after his 40-year hiatus to have this showdown with Pharaoh. Like, the story's about to get good, and then we find this little detour of a story on its way back. It will come from the screen. It says, verse 24, On the way to Egypt, at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. So this is on the spot. She touched his feet with the foreskin, I don't know why, and said, Now you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Verse 26, when she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to circumcision. After that, the Lord left him alone. And then literally, guys, the text, verse 27, just moves on. Like we're cruising on to Egypt. Like the Bible is like, all right, there it is. Like deal with it. Like you're just like, what? what? What's going on? Like what's the foreskin on the feet? Like how does she like do it on the spot? Like, you know, it's just the Bible does that sometimes. The Holy Spirit's like, here, you need to know this. And there's a lot of speculation of why Moses failed to circumcise the boy. But, but suffice to say that circumcision was a really, really, really big deal. Like, Moses is going to liberate hundreds of thousands of people, and God puts the brakes on the whole thing because he failed to keep a part of the covenant that was circumcision. And so, in a very real sense, in the idea of the Jew, to be a Jew was to be circumcised. This was like the identity of the people of God. And so, fast-forwarding back to the text, Paul is saying that the uncircumgentile, follow this, The uncircumcised Gentile who follows the law is more of a Jew than you are. Like, sit with that for a second. Like, the non-people of God are more the people of God than you are when they obey the law. And so this must have been absolutely shocking to the Jewish audience. Like, Paul is saying, like, over a thousand years of heritage stemming all the way back to Abraham is irrelevant. Like, this is what you would call fighting words, right? Like, when someone says something that spawns a fight, like, that's fighting words. And beyond this, circumcision in Paul's day was of particular significance because leading up to the first century, there was this really gnarly guy named Antichonus Epiphanes um, leading up to the first century. And his whole thing is he wanted to eradicate the Jewish religion. And one of the biggest ways that he wanted to do this was to go by making... uh, Go by making circumcision a child of a child of a capital offense. Let me say that again. My goodness. Making circumcision of a child a capital offense. That was the big, I was trying to say that. Like he was trying to go there. Like, I, like you guys want to do the circumcision thing? It's a capital offense, which means that you're going to be put to death. 
And so many of the Jews actually died rather than obeying this decree, which directly led to this little thing called the Maccabean Revolt. And if you've ever read through that little slice of history, that's crazy. But it eventually led to the restoration of the the Jewish practices and the temple, but not without a lot of bloodshed. And all for the purpose of maintaining their Jewish identity. And so when we read those passages in the New Testament that talk about the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, like in, in the mind of the Jew, like they couldn't believe that a person could become the people of God without circumcision. So much so that they were willing to die for the cause and have that big council in Acts 15 to say, man, I don't, I don't think this is how God is working. And so this is just a tiny vignette of what Paul is writing into. It was a supercharged emotional issue. And now Paul is saying, the Hellenistic Gentile who is uncircumcised is more the people of God than you are. And then he backs it up with logic where he explicitly says, for circumcision is of value if you keep the law. And so we need to catch what he's saying here. He's saying that, yes, circumcision was a reminder that you are actually the people of God, but it was also a reminder that they were responsible to the entirety of the law. And this is what Paul argues in Galatians exactly. It'll come on the screen, chapter 5. This is Paul speaking. He says, listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. And so we know from, from history that keeping the entire law thing was not going so hot for the Jewish people, right? Like a a couple of exiles living under Roman oppression, Gentiles blaspheming the name of God because their lack of law obedience. And then beyond that, they started making rules and regulations outside of the law so they wouldn't even come close to breaking the law. And, you know, that didn't work out so well either. And so the whole thing evolved into a group of people worshiping a, a system of religion rather than the God it was supposed to represent. They started off so good, and they turned this system of religion into a worship style rather than the God that it was supposed to represent. And so the idea of the day had become, as long as we're circumcised, we're good with God. As long as we keep our religious heritage, we're good with God. But in its original intent, it was a reminder that you guys are actually obligated to this thing called the law. And so verses 26 and 27, Paul looks at the same issue from an opposite angle to reinforce the same truth with rhetorical questions. And the same truth over and over is that circumcision is not what makes a person right with God. It's only those who keep the law. And obviously this is all rhetoric, right? Because the book of Romans is relentless in saying that no one keeps the law. And in chapter 3, he goes into very colorful language, explaining who we are in light of this truth. He says there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. They've all become worthless. Their throats are open graves. Like, that's offensive. The poison of viper is on their lips. Wow, Paul. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And on and on it goes just to show us, the audience, that, man, there's a huge gap between ourselves and God. And so he's saying circumcision is not going to cut it. Like, no pun intended there. Like, circumcision isn't going to cut it. And so when I look at this, I ask myself, okay, okay, if circumcision's not going to cut it, then, then like, what really is the point of circumcision? 
Like, if circumcision was the reminder of a law they couldn't keep, like, it seems like a moot point, right? Like, here's the sign for this law that you can't, can't keep. And so I got to thinking about it from, from our own perspective in regards to altar calls and baptism, right? Those are two things that we attribute value to at the church. Like, one is a church tradition, and the other one is a biblical mandate. But neither one is the means of salvation. And so what if a person was banking on their salvation because they stood at an altar call or because they were baptized, but their life didn't reflect any of those professions at any capacity? And so though you, and then you, like being the spiritual person you are, like you're a spiritual giant, right? And so you come to that person in love and say, hey, like I know you profess to believe X, Y, and Z, but gosh, your, your life does not reflect that. And so this person on this side takes great offense to that and looks at you and says, I responded to an altar call at such and such church, right? Like, I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. Like, it's hard to argue against that. I was baptized on Sunday afternoon at 1991 at the Jordan River. Like, I'm good with Jesus sort of thing. But you know, like, this person's inward life doesn't reflect these outward professions. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at. Like, like taking a, a public stand for the Lord is a good thing. Being baptized in obedience to Jesus is a good thing, but Paul is arguing that they're worthless unless there's been a change of the heart. Otherwise, it's just simply religious activity. And it has a really subtle danger of making us think that we're something we're actually not. And that's the danger of religion. Because if we do X, Y, and Z, then God has to accept us. We'll take a little bit of grace, but as long as we do X, Y, and Z, God has to accept us. And so this is why the scripture is chock full of passages that encourage us to see if our heart is right, like to see if our heart is true. Because the scary reality is that we can come here every Sunday and set up all the stuff and sing some songs and, and hear a message and all the while just be playing church unless the heart is in it. Like God can see through all the facades that we might put out there. And so the heart of following Jesus is not about being religious. The heart of following Jesus is obedience. Like this is the actual difference of knowing God. And so I want to illustrate you this um, by this, this guy named Saul, King Saul. This is a, a, a fantastic illustration of exactly what we're talking about. And you guys know King Saul, right? Like he, he started out really good, like the anointed king over Israel. Incredible potential. Like really tall. Like if you're, that's a bonus within itself. Like a tall, anointed, you're the king of Israel. But along the way, like something just took over his heart. Religion took over his heart. Where he was more concerned with checking boxes and, and pleasing people than following God with obedience. And at the height of his failure, this guy named Samuel, a prophet, came to him and he asked him a real simple question which is going to be pertinent to us, I think, this morning. In verse 22, it says, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? And he said, listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. Which simply translates, in the year 2018, that God is not interested in religion. He is and has always been interested in the heart of the obedient Christian. Because we can sacrifice, right? Like we can check all the right boxes. 
we can have these emotionally supercharged hearts and still completely miss God. And this is the point I kind of want to boil this whole thing down to. So if you're asleep, this is the part you should listen to right here. This is the important point. Because when obedience to God is passed over, religion always takes over. When obedience to God is passed over, religion always takes over. And we can get stuck in the machinery of religion for years, while the Spirit all the while is prompting us to reconcile with that person, to get involved in that ministry, to confess that sin, to give God an undistracted heart. But we numb the Spirit's prompting with religion by showing up at the right time, at the right places, singing the right songs with the right emotion, and on and on. And this is why religion is so dangerous. Because God's calling us to obedience while we're maintaining this religious life. And it's not that sacrifice and emotion is bad. Like, it's good that you give financially. God is pleased with that. It's good that you serve with your time. Like, God loves when we sacrifice to Him. But it's worthless unless it's preceded by obedience to the Spirit. It's absolutely worthless unless it's preceded with obedience to the Spirit. And so as we finish our time here, I want to show you this as we finish out our text in verse 29 of chapter 2. And I'm going to show you from the New Living Translation, and this is what Paul says. He says, No, a true Jew is the one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is the change of the heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not people. Like, this is like the mic drop verse here, right? Like, he could have dropped the mic, sent the letter, and just went on with his ministry in Corinth. And this idea of circumcision of the heart, was, it wasn't a new idea. Circumcision was always supposed to represent an inward reality. It was supposed to represent an expression of cutting away the old life. And so all the way back in Deuteronomy, we see Moses saying the same thing. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love you the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live. And so did you notice there in Romans and Deuteronomy, who changes the heart? In both passages, did you guys catch, like, who changes the heart? It's God who changes the person's heart. He says, God will circumcise your heart. In Romans, it said, the Spirit will circumcise your heart. And so the idea that's being expressed over and over is that the Gentiles, the Jews, the religious persons, all desperately need the gospel. Like no matter how hard we try, we cannot change. And this is why we're desperate for God. And this is why the, uh, the, uh, with the parable with the tax collector and the Pharisee where the tax collector is like beating his chest. He's like pounding his chest because he knew the problem was in here. He's like, he's trying to get at the problem. He's like, I can't, God, I can't change. Like no matter how hard I change or try to change, I, just, I can't do it. Like, God, you have to change my heart. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. While the Pharisees over there and saying, like, God, thank you that you made me this way. Like, like, thank you that I'm not like the Christian who's stuck in sexual immorality. Like, thank you, God, that I come to church every Sunday, unlike so and so. You know, thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy and that gal and that guy and so on and so on. And God's saying, man, you're missing it. Like, you're so religious, but you're missing that the problem is with you. And so the difference is when, when we understand who we are in light of who God is, like we know that there's something wrong in here. And so the Spirit has to come and do the heart surgery, so to speak, and change our heart. 
And this is the reality that we actually live in today, that Ezekiel talked about a long time ago. In uh, chapter 36, this is, this is an amazing verse. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove your heart, your heart from you and, of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so God's initiative was always to move from the external religious activity to the heart. Because what we need is not more rules and regulations and laws. What we desperately need is for the gospel. Like we need God to come and change our hearts. And so when we think about this from the big picture, like this in light of being religious, like it's like the big picture, like just step away from all the religious things you do. And if the gospel story is true, right? If the gospel is true, that if God left heaven to step into our messy lives and then hang on a cross on our behalf and then walk out of his tomb three days later as a vindicator of his power and sin over death and being religious without God-giving heart is really just silly, right? Like if that's a true story, that if God became a man and died for us, then for us to be religious in light of that is just silly, and because of the cross itself, this is why God's not concerned with the religion and rules and regulations and us trying to fix ourselves. Because if you put your faith in Jesus, like that's it. Like you're made right with God in a moment. And so it doesn't matter how bad you perform this week. It doesn't matter what thoughts went through your head. It doesn't matter how low you've been because the gospel is it's scandalous. The grace that God gives us is crazy. And the crazy thing is that the Spirit does this work in our heart that we actually want to follow God's laws after. And that's a completely another sermon that we're not going to get into because I'm not going to do that to you guys. But God changes our heart. So like, I remember I woke up one day after getting saved and I was like, golly, I want to, I want to read my Bible right now that my mom gave me 80 years ago. I know I'm 32, but what? You know, so, and I was like, I'm going to dust that thing and I'm going to read it. And I started reading it and consuming it and God was like changing my heart. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't want to be a, a lustful wretch. Like, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be an alcoholic. Like, I actually want to follow Jesus. And then eventually what happens when religion takes over is we get back to the other state where we say, wow, Jesus really cleaned me up. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy over there that's stuck in pornography. Thank you, God, that I'm not like so stuck in my money that I can't give 10 bucks to a person on the side of the street. God's not interested in that. He says, no, 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 no. God's grace is sufficient for everything. And so that's not what it's about. God doesn't want religion. And you'll notice, and I'll close it out with this, you'll notice if you want to know if you have a changed heart this morning, Paul says it right there. He says, a changed heart, it seeks praise from God and not man. It seeks praise from God and not man. And so if you're here this morning, you can, you can ask yourself a simple question like, what am I here for? Like, why did I come here this morning? Am I, am I here for some other reason than God? Because religion always wants praise for man. But when the Spirit changes a person's heart, it's like a personal deal where you're just like, Jesus, I want to please you. I want to go where you're at. But when we forgo obedience to the Spirit, when the Spirit's prompting us to do this other thing, when we forgo that obedience, then religion's always going to take over. And we're going to maintain this facade where we, we can do a lot of things without the Spirit. Like we can read our Bible, we can show up here, we can give. We can do a lot of things without the Spirit and be completely dead inside. And that's why Jesus said to the religious leaders of the day, man, you guys are like these beautiful 
whitewashed tombs. Like, you guys are amazing on the inside. Outside, not, not the inside. And then he said, on the inside, you guys are full of dead man's bones. And that's, that's a pretty heavy little picture because Jesus always sees through the heart. And so Paul says it there in verse 29, the true follower of God is the person whose heart is right with God. Is your heart right with God this morning? You know what's funny about that question? When I ask it, you know. Because the Spirit of God says yes or no. That's what the Spirit does. So ask again. Is your heart right with God this morning? And if it's not, why not do something about it today, right? Because God has way more for us than religion, right? He's not interested in that. He wants your heart. And so whatever he's been saying for you to do or not do, man, just do it. Because there's always blessing in following the Spirit. And to think that any of us are beyond this, I would remind us that a man who was after God's own heart fell into the same trap. Like a man that was after God's own heart fell into the same trap. Where he blew it big time, right? With this old girl named Bathsheba. Not a pretty picture, right? And so he, you know what he did? He, he obviously covered his sin up, but he kept maintaining the motions. He kept putting on a facade, like, I'm the king of Israel, blah, blah, yabba da da And then someone came to him and said, man, you're blowing it. And he finally came to the end of himself. And he wrote the most beautiful psalm of all the psalms, Psalm 51. But one verse I want to leave you guys with is verse 12. And this is what he said. Maybe this will be your prayer today. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. You guys remember the first hour you believed in Jesus? It's like ecstasy, right? You're like, oh my God, like there is a living God and he's concerned with me. And then we go on for so, so long and we just kind of lose that joy. Maybe, maybe that's where you need to go today is just like, God, restore the joy. Like restore where I need to go, where I need to be. And just ask yourself the question, man, am I right with God this morning? Is my heart where it needs to be? Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would just come and meet us humbly as you always do with the power of your spirit. We know that, God, we don't measure up, and that's why the gospel is so beautiful, because you came down to us. And so, Lord, we want to repent this morning of any sort of religious facades that we've been putting up. We don't want that anymore, God. We just, we want you. And so we ask that you would just meet us right where we're at this morning, that you would come and and touch our hearts, that you would circumcise our hearts for the first time, if that's some of us. And for the rest of us, we ask that you would just give us the joy of our salvation that we experienced that first hour that we first believed in you. We pray that you would do that because, Lord, beyond beyond ourselves, like we, we can't, we can't do it. So we, we really need you to do that, God. And so as we go into worship, I pray that you would just set aside all the distractions that we've came here with and that we would just get hyper-focused on what you have for us to do next. Like whatever that thing was, Lord, when we asked the question, like what is not right with your heart, that we would just kind of deal with that so that we can have life again. Lord, I pray that if anyone's here and their, their bones are wasting away on the inside, I pray that you would give them the courage to step out and get it right with you, Lord. And so we thank you that you hung on the cross and that we're completely justified. And there's nothing that we need to do when we leave these doors to be justified. Like, that's it. Like, we're justified in this space right now. 
And so God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for that. I thank you for the opportunity to share your word. I pray that it would be something that would actually change lives in a way that brings you glory and for our good. So I just lift all these things up in your name, Jesus. Amen.